Hello, and welcome to the Murder House Radio Show. I'm your host, X. On this show, we will be covering serial killers, killers, mass shooters, disappearances, true crime, and the most deplorable things and people in history. All that good, dark stuff. The Murder House Radio Show will be a radio show slash podcast. I'll be uploading videos every Friday at 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Once you hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification and select all notifications if you are viewing on YouTube. Hit follow if you are listening on a podcasting platform. So sit down, get comfortable, grab some coffee or whatever your preferred beverage is, turn off the lights, and enjoy the show. Today's episode will be on the cult leader, Jim Warren Jones. Jim Jones. So Jim Jones was an American cult leader, political activist, and self-professed faith healer who led the people the People's Temples Cult, which was a religious organization which existed between 1955 in 1978. He was born May 13, 1931, and died November 18, 1978. Yeah, well, what's up with all these uh, infamous people all being born or dying in November? <laughs> but, uh, yes, before we get into this too far, how was your week? How's your Friday going? How was your Friday going? And uh, I hope listening to this makes it better. Even if it was already good, hope it makes it even better. Or if it was shitty, hope this brightens up your day. But uh, yeah, let's uh, jump back into this. So I just said all that. And um, Joneses and his inner circle orchestrated a mass murder-suicide of himself and his followers in his remote jungle commune. That's why he's so famous. He laced cyanide with... Oh, laced cyanide. Laced Kool-Aid with cyanide. And, um, everybody drank it. And the people who were too young, like babies, were forced to drink it with syringes. And people were injected with it who couldn't drink it. And, uh, yeah, whoever wouldn't drink it and tried to run were shot and gunned down. But we'll get into that early, uh, later. Um, Jim founded the organization that would become the People's Temple in Indianapolis, Indiana, in 1955. Jim distinguished himself with his civil rights activism, founding the Temple's the temple has a fully integrated congregation, so all types of people are allowed. It doesn't matter your skin color or uh, your social standing. Everyone was uh, welcome. In 1965, he moved the temple to California, where the group established its headquarters in San Francisco and became heavily involved in left-wing politics through the 1970s. Nice, I guess. Jones then left the U.S. and established Jonestown, compelling many of his followers to live there with him. By 1978, media reports had surfaced of human rights abuses 
at Jonestown. Deciding to investigate these reports, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan led a delegation to the commune in November of that year. While boarding a return flight with some former Temple's members who wished to leave, Ryan and four others were murdered by gunmen dispatched from the compound. Jones then ordered and likely coerced a mass murder-suicide that claimed the lives of 918 cult members, 304 of which were children, almost all by cyanide poisoning by flavored Kool-Aid, like I mentioned earlier. But there's a little recap on the whole situation who he is, what he did, all that stuff. So uh, let's get into his early life. Jim was born in Crete, Indiana, C-R-E-T-E, to James Thurman Jones, a World War I veteran, and Lynetta, Lynetta Puntam, Putnam, Putnam, Lynetta Putnam. Interesting, that's an interesting name. Jones was of Irish and Welsh descent. He later claimed partial Cherokee ancestry through his mother, but his maternal second cousin said this was untrue. Okay. <laughs> In 1934, the eco economic difficulties during the Great Depression forced the family to move to a nearby town, to the nearby town of Lynn where Jones grew up in a shack without plumbing. Rough living. Rough living. So, Jones also was an avid reader who enjoyed studying Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx. So he was a commie, but this was back in the time of communism. So yeah. Um, Mayo Zendong. Zendong. That's, uh... Chairman Mayo was a Chinese, yet yeah, he's a commie as well. Um, he studied Gandhi and Adolf Hitler. That's quite the mix. A bunch of left-wing dudes, and then boom, all the way over to Nazis. <laughs> wow. But um, he also developed an intense interest in religion. One writer suggested this was primarily because he found it difficult to make friends. God is the only friend I need. <laughs> Childhood acquaintances recall Jones as a really weird kid, he looks weird, who obsessed with religion and death, alleging that he frequently held funerals for small animals on his parents' property and that he had stabbed a cat to death. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Um, one friend noted that after German prisoners of war arrived in Lynn during World War II, one patted young Jones on the back of the head, to which he responded by giving the Nazi salute, okay, <laughs> holy, and shouting, Hail Hitler, what a guy, what a guy. Jones and a childhood's friend both claimed his father was associated with the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, which had become very popular in the Depression era in Indiana. 
Okay, that's uh, interesting. Jones recounted how he and his father argued on the issue of race and how he did not speak with his father for many, many years after he refused to allow one of Jones's black friends into his house. So, Jones may have been racist, I don't know, getting mixed messages here, because he had black friends, but his dad seemed like a racist dickhead, or was, I guess. Jones's parents separated, and Jones relocated with his mother to Richmond, Indiana. In December 1948, he graduated high school with honors, and he graduated early. Interesting. So a smart kid. Smart but weird kid. Alright, alright. To support himself after high school, uh, Jones worked at a hospital and was regarded by the senior management. Was well regarded by the senior management. So they're like, oh, this, is, this guy's pretty cool. He's still in a pretty good job. But uh, staff members later recalled Jones exhibiting disturbing behavior. Well, how didn't this come out earlier? Uh, maybe it's because when he was uh, infamous and famous for killing all those people, they're like, yeah, there's something uh, pretty disturbing about that guy, but it never came up earlier. Huh. One former co-worker with whom... He had been childhood friends with recalled an incident where Jones manhandled a patient in tercation. Tercation. What's that? Tercation is a set of mechanisms of straightening broken bones. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, while dry heaving him. Um, okay. Resulting in the patient's injuries with a straight razor. Um. Okay, and then gave a menacing look at the co-worker. Okay, so he just kind of uh, manhandled him, and maybe when he was trying to shave him, cut him up a little bit, so he's just abusing the poor dude. In the Reed Hospital, where Jones met nurse Marceline Baldwin, who he married in 1949, okay, she would die with him at Jonestown, so maybe he was married once, or... He was one of those dudes who believed in having like 10 wives. But uh, Jones and his wife relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attended Indiana University, Bloomington. Okay. There he was impressed with a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt. So the wife of the President Roosevelt, word, about the plight of African Americans, okay. In 1951, the couple relocated to Indianapolis. Jones attended Indiana University for two years and then took a night and then took night classes at Butler University, earning a degree in secondary education in 1961, ten years after enrolling. Okay, so there's a summary of his early life and all that stuff. And then uh, let's get into the People's Temple. So in the 1950s, at 20 years old, Jones began attending Communist Party gatherings in Indianapolis. And then he became flustered with harassment 
during the McCanothy hearings, particularly regarding an event that he attended with his mother, focusing on Paul Robertson, after which she was harassed by the FBI agents in front of her co-workers for attending. Yeah, back then, it was very uh, looked down upon to be anywhere near or associated with commies. Because, you know, commies aren't the best. But, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and this was the height of the Cold War, mind you. Because the Cold War was, like, the end of World War Two up until, like, the 90s. Jones also became frustrated with the persecution of open and accused communists in the U.S. Oh, so he was a commie. He was a commie. Especially during the trial of Julius and Ethel Roseberg. Jones said he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? You don't. The thought was, infiltrate the church. Okay, so I'm guessing he was like, we can practice Marxism by infiltrating the church, starting my own movement, creating my own community, and boom, communism. But alright, alright, that uh, kind of makes sense, but not a good idea. Yes, communism can only work in small groups. Like, the bigger the groups, the harder it will be, and the more wrong things will go, it seems like. So, the Methodist District Superintendent helped Jones get started in the church, even though he knew Jones was a commie. Interesting, because real true commies don't have any time for religion. It's all about the state and bettering the people. And the state, of course. The people and the state. In 1952, he became a student pastor at the Somerset, 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 Southside Methodist Church. But later claimed he left the church because its leaders forbade him to integrate blacks into his congregation. Oh, okay, so... He wasn't racist, but he was into some wild shit. And everybody didn't like that he wasn't racist because he saw nothing wrong with black people, but at that time they were racist as shit. So, uh, alright, alright. Around this time, Jones witnessed a faith healing service at a Seventh-day Baptist church. He observed that it attracted people and their money, and concluded that he could accomplish his social goals with financial resources from such services. Ooh, so he's going to be a hustler. He's going to be like, all right, I could uh, just get it to fake it. I could just fake it or whatever, pretend to heal some people. And then people will be like, oh, heal me. And then they believe so strong in it. He does it and they're like, oh, I'm healed or whatever. Or they think they're healed or there is nothing ever wrong with them. But, uh, yeah, he was just a straight hustler scamming people. Alright. Alright. But, uh, yes, Jones organized a mammoth religious convention to take place June 11th to 15th, 1956 in Indianapolis, Candle Tabernacle. <laughs> Candle Tabernacle, nice. 
Needing a well-known religious figure to draw crowds, he arranged to share the event with Reverend William M. Braham, a healing evangelist and religious author who was highly revered as Oral Robert. Okay, I'm not in much with this religious stuff, so uh, don't know who these people are, don't know what this is all about, but it's interesting so far. I hope you guys are finding it interesting. Jones was able to begin his own church after the convention, which had various names until it became the People's Temple's Christian Church Full Gospel. That's a mouthful. Hey man, you want to uh, join my religion? Oh, sure, what's it called? The People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. <laughs> after shortened to People's Temple. Yes, but that's still a fucking long name. He was ordained as a minister in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God and in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. Okay. Uh, Jones was known to regularly study Adolf Hitler and Father Divine to learn how to manipulate members of People's Temple. Yes, Hitler was actually pretty good at manipulation, but he had a whole team to do it with. But, you know, he was still pretty good at it. Not to promote Hitler or anything, because, you know, fuck that guy. But if you look at what he did and how he did it, he did it pretty well, and he did it at just the right time, too, because Germany at that time was uh, going crazy. But let's continue. Divine told Jones personally to find an enemy. Yes, that's what Hitler did as well, but to find an enemy and to make sure they know who the enemy is. Exactly what Hitler did. As it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to him yes that's a good idea divide and conquer and have a direct mission but yes very smart man right here so far but a fucking lunatic but uh yeah but yes controversy 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 grew within his movement and around him because he was letting other colored people, air quotations, into his uh, church, which was highly frowned upon at the time. And he was like, fuck you, bro, I'm not down with that racist shit, even though I study Hitler and adapt his methods. But I don't think that necessarily makes you racist. You don't have to agree with the dude, but studying him and adapting the methods, because Hitler wasn't the one who invented all those methods, but you know. Let's uh, get on with it. And, as, and, uh, and again, I am not vouching for Hitler. I'm just saying. But uh, yes. Yes. Jones was appointed human right to the Human Rights Commission in Indi by the Indianapolis mayor. Or, yes. And he was told to keep a low pro profile, but he ignored it. And he used the... It has a platform for uh, views on the local radio and television programs for his uh, his uh, cult, you could see. Yeah. Which is just the opening you would need for uh, to grow your movement. But uh, let's continue. 
the mayor and other commissioners asked him to curtail his public actions, but he resisted. Jones was wildly cheered at meetings of the NAACP, National Association for the... Ah, what the hell? Hold on. Ah, fuck. National Association for the Achievement of Colored People. Okay, so that's the colored people movement. That's all good. Fighting for their rights and stuff. But uh, he when he yelled for his audience to be more militant and the climaxed with it, let my people go. Okay, so he used all this stuff to rally up the people to get them to like him and ultimately join his church, most likely. Which is a smart move. Very smart move. But he did do a lot of good before he fucking decided to murder everybody. During this time, Jones helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater amusement park, and the Indiana... Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. Swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families and Jones walked through the neighborhood comforting local black communities and counseling white families not to move. Okay, okay, so it's either one or two things. He was genuinely a good dude at this point or he was like, hey, the black people are all oppressed at this time and era. I'll be their, uh, I'll be a white dude who fights for them. I'll gain a lot of attention. Black people will love me. They'll want to follow me. Some white people will want to follow me as well. And we'll get this shit bumping. It's one of the two. One of the two. But knowing the other fuck-ass shit he did towards the end of his life, I would say it's the second one. But I'm not sure. Leave it in the comments what you think. He also set up a sting operation to catch restaurants refusing to serve black customers. Okay. And wrote to the American Nazi party leaders pressing their response to the media. Okay. Jones was accidentally placed in the black ward of a hospital after a collapse in 1961 but refused to be moved. Good man. He begged to make the beds and empty the bedpans of black patients. Political pressure resulted from Jones's action caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards. Well, that's good. So my guy was a human rights activist and a racial equity activist, I guess you could say. I'm not even sure if that's a thing, but I guarantee it probably is. But, um... Jones received considerable criticism in Indiana for his integrationist views. Yes, because they were racist back then. Likewise, white-owned businesses and locals were critical of him. Among other incidents, uh, Swastika was placed on the temple. A stick of dynamite was left in a temple coal pile hoof. And a dead cat was thrown at Jones's house after a threatening phone call. Yes. Very wild times back then. Very wild. So I guess he was known as the Rainbow Family because Jones and his wife adopted non-white children 
referring to the household as his Rainbow Family, so that was his nickname. That's all a good word. And he stated, integration is a more personal thing with me now. It's a question of my son's future. Word. Alright. He also portrayed the temple as a rainbow family. Alright, alright. In 1954, the Joneses adopted Engens. Agens, A-G-N-E-S, who was part Native American. In 1956, they adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephen, and Suzanne. The letter, the latter of whom was adopted at age six and encouraged temple members to adopt orphans from war-ravaged Korea. All right, all right. That's uh, all right. Uh, Jones, critical of you at of the U.S., opposed to communist leader Kim Il Sung. So the late, the last leader of, not the last, the uh, previous leader of North Korea, I'm pretty sure. In, in the 1950 invasion of South Korea, calling it the War of Liberation, and stating that South Korea is a living example of all the socialism in the North has overcome. Okay. In June 1959, Jones and his wife had their own biological child, naming him Stephen Gandhi. Okay, okay. In 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child. Oof. Alright. Naming him Jim Jones Jr. or James Warren Jones Jr. Okay. They also adopted a white son, originally naming him Timothy Glenn Tupper, shortened to Tim, those birth, whose birth mother was a member of the temple. Okay, alright, alright. So they moved to Belo Horizon, Brazil, and they were preaching to the temple at that location after preaching at the temple about the fears of nuclear war because it was the Cold War after all. And reading an article in January 1962 issued to the Esquire magazine, which listed uh, the city as a safe harbor in the event of an atomic exchange. Okay. On his way to Brazil, Jones made his first trip to Guyana, to Guyana which at the time was still a British colony. Word. This podcast turning into a real history lesson for this episode, holy. But, um, the Jones family rented a three-bedroom home in Belo Horizonte. 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 Belo Horizonte. Fuck me. Sorry about the bad pronunciations. You guys know I'm horrible at that by now. Jones has studied the local economy and receptiveness of racial minorities to his message. Although language remained a barrier. Yes, because you're in Brazil. He also explored local Brazilian sinceric religions. Okay, okay. Carefully, careful not to portray himself as a communist in a foreign territory, okay? He spoke of a apostolic communal lifestyle, 
apostolic communic lifestyle word rather than of Castro or Marx. Okay, so he just worded it differently or something, I guess. These are big book learning words. <laughs> if you get that reference, that's all good. Um, ultimately, the lack of resources in where he was led the family to move back to move to Rio de Janeiro in mid-1963, where they worked with the poor in the favelas, alright? Jones became plagued by guilt for effectively abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana and possibly losing what he had tried to build there. He associated preachers in Indiana told him, so associates of his told him in Indiana... The temple was about to collapse without him, so he went back. Alright, so then he went back to California to help the temple survive. Alright, so he went back and a bunch of stuff happened. You can go check the sources for that. Well, not a bunch of stuff, but you can go check the sources and stuff. But uh, by the early 70s, Jones began deriding Christianity as a flyaway religion, rejecting the Bible as being a tool to oppress women and non-whites, and denouncing a sky god who is no god at all. Oof. He wrote a book titled The Letter Killeth. Okay. Criticizing the King James Bible. Oh, I just spittled everywhere. Jones also began preaching that he was the reincarnation of Father Divine, Mahatam Gandhi, Jesus, Gautama, Gautama Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. Holy, just reincarnated all those peoples, all those historical figures into one person, and boom, you got Jim Jones. That's basically what he's saying. Formal Temple member Hugh Fortson Jr. quoted him as saying, What you need to believe in is what you can see. Lots of people think like that. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I will be your father. For those of you that do not have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I will be your God. Alright, alright. So, within five years of moving to California, the temple experienced a bit of growth, quite a bit of growth, and opened branches in cities including San Fernando, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. By the early 70s, Jones began shifting his focus to major cities across California because of limited expansion opportunities in Yukia. He eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco, which was a major center for racial protest movements. Okay, makes sense. Jones and the temple soon became influential in the city's politics, accumulating in the temple's instrumental role in the George Moscone's election as mayor in 1975. Moscone subsequently appointed Jones as the chairman of San Francisco's House of Authority Commission. Okay, fair enough. So he did a bunch of political stuff. You can read about that in the sources because you guys aren't here for that stuff. I'm just giving you all a little background on the stuff. 
So here's the formation and operation of Jonestown, the colony down in Guyana. Guyana. Jones had started building Jonestown several years before the New West article was published. It was promoted as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media serenity in San Francisco. Jones portrayed to establish it as a model communist community, adding that the temple comprised the purest communist there are. Yeah, that doesn't always work like that, but alright. As I said earlier, though, that's what I said earlier. He did not, however, permit members to leave the settlement. Yes, communism at its finest. You cannot leave, that will hurt the state. <laughs> now, religious scholar Mary McCormick Margara argued that Jones's authority decreased after the exposed of Jonestown because he was not needed for recruitment and he could not hide his drug addiction from rank and file members okay in spite of his allegations prior to jones jones's departure he was still respected by some for setting up a racially integrated church which helped the disadvantaged 68 percent of jonestown residents were black yes yeah, see what i mean he did all this work for uh, racial equality, which was good, which was really actually good, but it was to rally and gather as many black people as he could to join his cult, which makes sense. Jones began to progate his beliefs in what he termed translucent once his followers settled in Jonestown, claiming that he and his followers would all die together, move to another plane, and live blissfully. Oof. Well, god damn. That's uh, wild stuff right there. So, Jones claimed he was the biological father of a child named John Victor Stone. S-T-O-E-N. Stone? Victor Stone. Alright, weird. Though the birth certificate listed Temple Attorney Timothy Stowen and his wife Grace as the parents of the child, the Temple repeatedly claimed that Jones fathered the child in 1971 when Stowen had requested that Jones have sex with Grace to keep her from defecting. Oof. Grace left the temple in 1976 and began divor the divorce proceedings the following year. Jones ordered Stowen to take the boy to Guana in February 1977 in order to avoid a custody dispute with Grace. Oof. After Stowen himself defected in, in June 1977, the temple kept the child in Jonestown. Oof. Jones also fathered Jim Joan Kimmel with Temple member Carlene, Carolyn Layout, Layton, Carolyn Layton. Okay, so that's a real piece of shit move right there. Piece of shit move. So the political attention towards Jonestown started because a bunch of people defected 
and they said they still have family members there and wanted to get them out. Involving Stowen. Stowen traveled to Washington, D.C. in January 1978 to visit the State Department officials and members of Congress and wrote a white paper wrote a white paper detailing his grievances against Jones and the temple. His errors aroused the curiosity of California Congressman Leo Ryan, who wrote a letter to Stone's on Stone's behalf to Guyana's Prime Minister Forbe Broem. The concerned relatives also began a legal battle with the temple over the custody of Stone's son. Oh yeah. Most of Jones's political allies broke ties after his departure, though some didn't. William Brown spoke out against enemies at a rally that was attended by Harvey Milk and Assembly Art Engelson. On February 19, 1978, Milk wrote a letter to U.S. President Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character and claimed that the Temple defectors were trying to damage Reverend Jones's reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. Mayor Marsocone office issued a press release saying Jones has broken no laws. Okay. On April 11, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed a packet of documents, letters, and affidavits to the People's Temple, members of the press. So they gave that all to the press. And members of the Congress, which they titled... Accusations of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. Okay, so they gave that to the press and the Congress and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, in June 1978, the escaped Temple member, Deborah Layton, provided the group with a further affidavit detailing crimes by the Temple and substandard living conditions in Jonestown. Yes, that's why communism doesn't work. But there again, they kind of just fucked off and built their own stuff. So it probably wasn't the best either way, communism or not. Jones was facing increasing scrutiny in the summer of 1978 when he hired JFK, assassination conspiracy theorist, Mark Lane and Donald Freed to help him make the case of grand conspiracy against the temple by... U.S. intelligence agencies. Okay. <laughs> I don't think hiring conspiracy theories, especially conspiracy theorists, oh, especially at that time, would help. But uh, Jones told Lane that he wanted to pull in Elridge Cleaver, referring to a fugitive member of the Black Panthers who is able to return to the U.S. after rebuilding his reputation. Okay, so there's that. There's that. So on November 1978, Congressman Ryan led a fact. He led a mission to Jonestown to investigate the allegations of human rights abuses. His delegation included relatives of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and reporters for various newspapers. He took them all to the Jonestown to investigate the human rights. Ryan's delegation left hurriedly 
after the afternoon of November 18th, after Temple member Don Sell attacked the congressman with a knife, though the attack was throughout, Ryan and his delegation managed to take along 15 Temple members who had expressed a wish to leave, and Jones made no attempt to prevent their departure. Yes, when they were trying to leave, at the port of Ketuam Airstrip, they met the plane, they ambushed the plane, and killed them all, which is uh, wild. The five killed at the airstrip were Ryan Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia, Patricia Parks. Patricia Parks, fuck me, <laughs> sorry guys. Um, Patricia Parks and surviving the attack were future congresswoman Jackie Spear and Ryan staff member Richard D Dwyer, deputy chief of mission from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, Bob Flick, and NBC producer Stephen Sung, an NBC sound engineer, Tim Reitman, an examiner report, John Jervis, and Chronicle reporter, Charles Carews, and Washington Post reporter, and several defecting Temple members. So five people got murdered, and a bunch escaped into the jungle, someone missing and were never seen again. Others made it, but yes... That's what happened when they tried to uh, help people leave and investigate the claims. So a bunch of fuckery was on hand. Later that day, since they knew people escaped and stuff from the massacre, on November 18th, 1978, he poisoned 909 inhabitants of Jonestown with cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. And as I said earlier, those who tried to hide or didn't drink the Kool-Aid were shot. And then everybody else, after everyone was poisoned, either shot themselves, ran, and I'm pretty sure Jones himself shot himself or had someone shoot him for him. So on a tape, Jones tells Temple members that the Soviet Union with who the temple had been negotiating a potential exodus to Russia for months, would not give them a pass after the airstrip shooting. The reason given by Jones to commit suicide was consistent with his previ previously stated conspiracy theories of intelligence organizations allegedly conspiring against the temple. That men would parachute in here on us, Shoot some of our innocent babies, and they'll torture our children. They'll torture some of our people here. They'll torture our seniors. Jones' prior statements that hostile forces converted captured children to fascism would lead many members who strongly believed in the temple's leftist ideology to view the supposed suicide as valid. So that's how he convinced them, and uh, that's what he said. But uh, yes, there also is a whole recording 
of him giving his speech and the people drinking the cyanide lace Kool-Aid and the people crying and uh, moaning from the painful cyanide death on YouTube. I'll probably link it in the description below if I can find it. The Kool-Aid was, however, grape-flavored. That's uh, stereotypical a little bit. Holy, I didn't know it was grape-flavored, but, uh, yes, that's, uh, weird. Very weird. The Kool-Aid was also mixed with sedatives and cyanide, and Jones had taken large shipments of cyanide into Jonestown for several years prior to the uh, date of the mass suicide, having obtained a jeweler's license that would allow him to purchase the compound in bulk to proposedly clean gold. I didn't know they used cyanide to clean gold, but all right. One Temple's member, Christina Miller, dissented towards the beginning of the tape. Okay. When members apparently cried, Jones consoled, stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialists or communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Oof. Jones can be heard saying, don't be afraid to die. That death is just sleeping over into another plane. And that is a friend. Jones's wife, Marceline, apparently protested killing the children. She was forcibly restrained and then joined the other adults in poisoning herself. At the end of the tape, Jones concluded, We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of, inhu of, the, of this inhumane world. Well, god damn. According to another temple members, a couple temple mem members, Otto Rhodes and Stanley Clayton, who escaped the mass poisoning, children were given the flavor aid first by their own parents. Families were told to lie down together. Rodens also reported being a close in close contact with dying children. The mass suicide had previously discussed in simulated event. Oh, so they rehearsed this many times before it actually happened, and they called it the White Nights on a regular basis. During at least one such prior white night, members drank liquid that Jones falsely told them was poisoned. So he would do this? I'm guessing he would do this in order to see if they'd do it without hesitation and without questioning him. That's fucked up, bro. Holy. And you can also go see pictures of all the bodies and shit laying down on Google. I don't recommend it, but you can. It's uh, sad. Jones was found dead on the stage at the center of the pavilion. He was resting on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to the head. Which, Gizena Corner Cyril Mutu said was consistent with suicide. Jones's body was later dragged outside the pavilion for examination and embalming. The official autopsy conducted in December 1978 also confirmed Jones's death was a suicide. 
Yes, he's too much of a pussy to drink his own Kool-Aid. His son, Stefan, believed his father may have directed someone else to shoot him. But this speculation... But this is speculation, yes. The autopsy also showed levels of barbiturate pentobarbital in Jones's body. So like a sedative. So he wouldn't have felt the gunshot, basically. Which may have been lethal to humans who had not developed a tolerance. According to Jeff Gonin's book, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones in People's Temple, Jones's body was cremated and his remains were scattered in the Atlantic Ocean. But, uh, yes, that's a pretty, pretty wild right there. It's a wild story. This was a famous event, obviously, so there are a bunch of books, documentaries, and movies about it. So all you have to do is just search up the Jonestown Massacre, and a bunch of stuff will come up. But, uh, yeah, a little break from the serial killers, you could say. But still dark, nonetheless. But, uh, yeah, I guess I hope you enjoyed. I can't, I don't know if I should say that, but, uh... Hope you enjoyed listening, I guess. So that is Jim Jones. Thank you for listening to this episode on the Murder House Radio Show. I hope you have a good rest of your Friday or whenever you are listening to this. Check out the social medias and the sources in the description below. Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Once you hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification and select all to get all notifications if you are listening on YouTube. If you are listening on a podcasting platform, hit follow. See you on the next episode. This is your host X, signing off.